tonight we've come together because it's the uh, Buddhist holy day, the observance day. Also, we're dedicating this evening's practice to uh, Lumpur Anand, showing mudita jitta, expression of our gratitude and appreciation for our teacher on his birthday through the practice Patipati Bhucha. When I just ordained, I think I was only one reigns as a monk, one of Lumpur Chao's senior disciples was a monk called Lumpur Mahasupong, who had <clears throat> begun his monk's life as a scholar training in Pali studies and became a skilled scholar and a skilled Dhamma teacher with a good reputation. And then later on started to become weary of teaching Dhamma ceremonies, events, and study, feeling there was something missing. And so he was drawn to come and join the Sangha at Wapapong. And he said he had great joy coming to, even though he was coming to live in simplicity compared to his former life in the robes, he was very happy and content to be under Lumpur Cha. Had the utmost faith and confidence in Lumpur Cha as his teacher and really wanted to practice meditation. And I, a number of occasions, was sitting with other monks talking with him. And he was always well known for his Dhamma talks to the laity. He was very popular. They're often more general Dhamma talks, talking about aspects of, um, or Dhamma that's relevant to the lay life. I like to quote the Dhammapada and Jataka stories and things like that, which people in Thailand love to hear. But when you talk with the monks, he would change and he'd talk much more directly about meditation and particularly the practice of a supagamatana which he didn't always hear in these public talks, but in private he'd talk. And in, in praise of a supagamatana body contemplation, and he would say how Lumpur Cha emphasized that as a foundation in our meditation practice as monks. And he always seemed to have great appreciation of uh, Ajahn Biak and Ajahn Anand, who were very junior to him in years, but he seemed to have an affinity with them and appreciate their efforts in the practice. So sometimes uh, he would talk to them. So that's one way I got to know them, their reputation as monks committed to the practice of meditation, bhavana, monks who had found some results from their practice.
And over the years, Jenanan uh, invited Lumpo Mahasupong to Wat Map Chan on a number of occasions. So I met him on and off, and he's always uh, encouraging the practice of meditation in general, a supagamatana in particular, and particularly in relation to Ajahnananda's own practice. So that's one of the causes why I went to live first with Ajahn Beer and then with Ajahnananda. Living with Ajahnananda over the years was very content uh, to practice at Wat Mark Chan and always felt Ajahnananda was a very complete Dhamma teacher <coughs> following the footsteps of our original teacher Lumpur Cha and certain themes that come out over and over again in the way he teaches and the reflections he gives whether in passing or in formal talks always emphasizing the respect and faith in the triple gem as the beginning of our practice. We're disciples of the Buddha. Uh, our whole lifestyle is inherited from the Buddha. We're in debt, as it were, to the Buddha. Uh, but that's also our good fortune that we've met the Buddhist teachings and that we have this opportunity to practice. Uh, it's constantly reflecting and bringing up Buddha Anusati in the way he talks and practices. It's a constant theme you'll find when you live with him. Um, then also another aspect you might say is the emphasis on internalizing the practice of sila. And sila, the Vinaya precepts and practices are not just external practices which we believe in or hold to. There's practices that you have to bring into your mind until your mind is actually thinking and abandoning the <clears throat> causes to go against sila unwholesome negative mental states that lead us to break sila. Something, again, a theme he emphasizes over and over again. Obviously, we, in the beginning, we do depend on the external practice of sila. We learn the rules. We learn to restrain us, body, speech, and mind, our actions, our speech. But our aim is to develop the mindfulness and the right effort and the insight to actually abandon those sankharas, the intentions that would lead us to break sila, simply by seeing the harm that not following vinaya, not following sila does, it brings us suffering. So it's in our own interest to keep the precepts. But internalizing that insight, that vision that really sees it's harmful to the mind when you follow a negative intention in speech, in your action, to kill, to harm, with body speech. And obviously these basic things of Buddha Anusati or Sila Anusati, uh, 
have a point in the he again emphasizes the practice of the development of bhavana meditation, but it can't be separate from the faith in Buddha Dhamma Sangha and the understanding of the importance of purity of sila in the development of the mind. Now, over the years, monks who live with him, you see them develop a certain firmness in their practice, in their commitment to the practice, commitment in their practice of the Vinaya, development of meditation objects, and general commitment to the practice. It's something that you see runs through the Sangha that have lived with him, practiced with him, and then great respect and gratitude to him for helping to impart that and encourage that. When I first went to live at Wat Mark Jan, I was about three or four rains. I'd been living with Ajahn Piak and I spent some time at Wat Mark Jan. In those days, and the routine was um, very simple and the monastery in those days had there weren't that many buildings or activities coming and going. There was no electricity, no monastery car. So naturally things were pretty simple. And every day the morning meeting would begin at three. And it's different from some of the other monasteries, which often had quite a lot of chanting. The emphasis would be more on sitting and walking meditation. So you'd walk and sit until dawn, around five, and maybe just do 10 or 15 minutes of chanting, and then get ready for Bindabhata. And then in the evening it was the same. Quite regularly there'd be an evening meeting of three hours, <clears throat> between seven and 10. But again, with fairly short burst of chanting at some point, and mainly just emphasizing either sitting or walking, whichever posture, but just staying with the practice for that period of time. Also the emphasis on Acharya Vata, looking after the Ajahn, serving the Ajahn by helping to run the monastery, clean it, maintain it, and so on, as you find him most forest monasteries. And there was a great, amongst the earlier Sangha members, a great commitment to the practice, of a very a great sense of diligence, not being happy to miss a meeting or miss, miss out on some duty that one was supposed to do. There'd be a sense of personal discontent if one did that, let alone what other people might think or say. There's a sense of, I shouldn't miss out on this. There's a great sense of valuing the practice. And that was quite general throughout the Sangha. Even novices in those days, you don't see so many young novices in Thailand now because of the changing culture. But sometimes there'd be novices in their teens. Even they had this sense of diligence and 
commitment to the practice, which for teenagers is quite rare. And obviously they had their own kilesas and problems, but it ran through the whole sangha from start to finish. So there's a, a good sense of harmony and commitment with a similar purpose. It's the purpose of training. And Jananan was always emphasizing, first of all, just basic mindfulness in daily life. You know, the, the Vinaya is to be practiced with mindfulness, the different duties of a bhikkhu, you know, Bindabhata, Charyawata, Senasanawata, always bringing up mindfulness, restraint. So a lot of the monks had a great kind of respectful fear of the Ajahn. I remember he, he didn't always you know, tell people off or have to do very much, simply the presence of an Ajahn can be enough to bring up that sense of extra mindfulness and restraint. So once a vehicle was offered to the monastery or even just on occasions when other people lent their vehicles, if they had to go out on an invitation or go somewhere to visit another monastery, the general practice was in the, in the car, you didn't speak unless the Ajahn invited you or encouraged you to speak. You sat quietly in the car. So then obviously some monks would forget that during the course of a journey, start chatting and get really loud and boisterous. Ajahn and Anand might just turn from the front seat and not say anything, just look, and then everyone realized, oh, lost it, lost the mindfulness, called into another stream of verbalization or proliferation, sankharas. I think in 10 years, there was one time I can remember him actually commenting to a group of monks in the back of the car. He's saying, oh, there was three terrors in the front and a lot of noakas in the back. And he just turned around and said, hmm, the terrors are not even speaking. So why are the noakas speaking so much? Just little moments like that bring people back to the to the present moment. And that was the kind of flavor of the practice. Not so much um, telling people off, but just providing an atmosphere where mindfulness and restraint is encouraged and seen as what we're aiming for. And so moments where we lose restraint, lose mindfulness, seen as something to be remedied or fixed up whether it's sweeping or in the meetings or traveling, whatever, developing that basic restraint and mindfulness in all situations as a foundation for deepening one's meditation internally. You always said if you practice mindfulness in daily life in all your activities, then when you come back to do some formal sitting or walking meditation, it doesn't take long to calm down and get back into your meditation object and to maybe deepen your practice because you've been maintaining mindfulness, mindfulness through the day, through different activities. But if you let your mind go, always chatting, socializing, always following your moods through the day, well obviously you have a lot more work to do when you come to meditate.
and that extra work you have to do drains the mind and even drains our commitment to the practice because we get frustrated and tired always having to work with a, an unruly, untamed mind. So it's in our own interest to practice mindfulness through the day. It makes the, the general practice of meditation a lot easier and smoother. And then it also provides you with that sense of preparedness, we say apamada, heedfulness, in all kinds of situations because life is unpredictable. So when you live with a teacher who practices this, then you see in different situations how they maintain their mindfulness, don't give in to temptation to be you know, overly socializing or excitable, not giving in to anger or ill will at times where things may be tempting that to happen. As a general heedfulness and carefulness about them. So over the years, seeing that over and over again with Ajahnanam, again, it brings up the faith that this is somebody who's really practicing and training, and you can see them practicing and training in different situations. It's not just an intellectual understanding of Buddhism that they have, it's something that's there in the heart. So over the years, you know, through his own personal practice understanding and then the compassion for teaching others, particularly monks, you know, his Sangha has expanded to a huge size of um, the Sangha at Wat Chan and then the associated branch monasteries and then many monks around this Thailand and around the world now who have faith and um, appreciation for his teachings, it's really grown. It's out of this very solid foundation. He always said, you know, you have, whether you're talking about your own individual practice or the growth of a monastery or the growth of a sangha, you have to have the solid core first. You know, we might be ambitious to teach or go out and do all kinds of good things in the world, but there's no point doing that unless you've developed a solid foundation inside, internally, first. And particularly develop your meditation first. Otherwise it's very easy for our, for our practice to collapse under the pressure. Because you go out into the world where well, you have to deal with all the different aramanas, mental objects, different experiences and situations that the world brings you. In his own personal practice, he talked a lot about how he developed Marunanu Sati first, mindfulness of death as a meditation object for the first five years of his practice. And then gradually developing Gaya Gada Sati, Asupagamatana, Datugamatana, contemplation of the elements, and the perception of emptiness, seeing this body. Sanitya Dukkha Anatta, particularly empty of self. So if you put a label on it, you might say the way he teaches it very much emphasizes the practice of wisdom developing samadhi. We learn to 
reflect on the Dhamma, to increase our mindfulness and through the continuous presence of mindfulness to, to develop states of calm, samadhi, kanika samadhi, upachara samadhi, apana samadhi. We can use wisdom, wise reflection to do this. Most people don't have a huge store of barami in the practice of samadhi. A few do, but most of us come to Buddhism, we have a more intellectual approach. We're thinkers, we have knowledge. But we can use that to our advantage. We're learning to contemplate the Dhamma, but with the goal of, say in the beginning, letting go of distracting thoughts, the hindrances. And later to actually develop insight into the true nature of phenomena. To get down to seeing this body, see the candor, see this body and mind as it is. See the candors as they are, as impermanent, as dukkha, not to be clung to, and as not self, not a being, a person, me, you, us or them, but just as they are, candors that arise and cease according to conditions. And this again is something emphasizes over and over again, developing this internal vision of Dhamma that really changes our whole way of looking at ourselves, the world, life. Developing more of that detached awareness and understanding that sees the way things are without getting caught up into the likes and dislikes and all the mental confusion that that brings. <clears throat> so in the early days, as I said, at Wat Mark Chan used to practice very diligently just every day. I don't think there was really a may, maybe the occasional day off for some reason or other. But generally, it's morning meetings and evening meetings regularly, but in this sort of more open format of sitting and walking. It is just continuous dedication to the practice of Dhamma, even if one had been up all day doing other chores and things, just to keep coming back to sitting and walking. And then the practice of Nesajika on one prat. Not that one would always be peaceful or in a state of samadhi, but it's the dedication to bringing up mindfulness and awakening the mind. Because the only way we can do that, if you want to gain samadhi, gain insight, well, there has to be the causes and conditions for that, and that has to come through the effort. It's not something you can attain just through wanting it. It has to come through practice. It's getting into that good habit of regular practice. There's something Ajahn Anand, again, like Lumpur Cha, emphasized over and over again, continuous, regular practice, whether you're peaceful or not. If you're not peaceful, we get to know the mind that is not peaceful. But bringing up mindfulness, awareness to see that and know that. If you are peaceful, obviously, then you get the bonus, you get the reward of some pity and sukha, which helps 
in the practice of contemplation, seeing things as they are when the mind is calm. But just that regular dedication to the practice, always coming back to it, even if one's been traveling or working or doing things that you might think of as a distraction, not letting them be a distraction through the regular practice, returning to the practice of meditation, developing mindfulness. And so on many occasions when assumed he would be, Ajahnanan would be tired and would probably prefer to rest, but didn't rest because maybe there was a need to teach monks or do things for the monastery but then still being able to return to the practice of meditation. So many times meditated with him at say 10 or 11 o'clock at night, simply because before that there wasn't an opportunity. And in the early days, say like quite regularly after an evening meeting, you'd go and uh, massage him, which meant literally massaging his feet, but also having a chat about the Dhamma and for many years that would go on maybe 12, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. Probably the latest would be 4 a.m. So that means five hours talking with monks about Dhamma. And not just once or twice, but regularly, over and over again. So tremendous compassion, sacrifice for other bhikkhus to help give them teaching and encouragement but also by keeping them up. I mean, they were there voluntarily. You never, I don't think he ever forced anyone to massage him, but just providing an opportunity to be up later when you'd rather sleep, you'd stay there and push through your sleepiness. They're very helpful to get monks to practice more. Another thing I noticed over the years, you know, what Mark Chan, many monks come and go, and many monks of all shades and colors and personalities you know, not all humble and respectful and well-behaved you, know, you get a whole variety because thailand is a huge sangha with many monks and even forest monks there's a lot of them and sometimes they travel around and you get some come who are a bit rough in their practice rough and ready Generally, Ajahnanan would always give them a chance and let them prove themselves through their own behavior, their own practice. If they wanted to join the Sangha and study and practice there. I don't think I ever saw him turn away somebody. But eventually he might have to if they didn't behave properly. But generally he gave people as much chance as they could, he could. And then let them speak for themselves. Remember in one case, particularly there's one monk who, when he came, got to know him. He wasn't hiding the fact that he'd been a criminal in the past and done a few uh, unwholesome things. Um, but he was still, a, he'd become a monk and trying to reform himself so people were giving him that chance. But some of his character and behavior is a bit rough. So gradually he started to rub up against almost everyone in the monastery, 
is very argumentative, obnoxious, had very strong opinions, would argue with everyone. Even in the middle of an evening meeting, he could perk up and start, start an argument in the middle of the Sangha. <laughs> I never once saw Ajahn Anand get angry with him. He was probably tired and fed up with the monk, but you know, I never saw him get angry with him or upset by him. He just tried to use wisdom and compassion to deal with him. And then towards the end of the time this monk stayed in the monastery, he got to the point where pretty much everyone hoped that he would leave. Ajahn Anand still hadn't asked him to leave, even though monks were requesting that that would happen. He got to the point where he was sort of picking arguments with everyone. He once made this sort of statement in the middle of all the monks and said, Oh, I can argue with anyone in this monastery and win the argument. Sort of made a challenge to everybody. Ajahn Anand still allowed him to come and massage him with the other monks in the evening, and he would argue there. <laughs> One day, Ajahn just said, Look, I can't, I couldn't beat you in a worldly fight, you know, a physical fight, or just a sort of a, a shouting match, but I can beat you in the Dhamma. You can't match me in the Dhamma. It's the only time I ever saw that monk actually be a little bit humble and agree, mm, that's probably true. <laughs> but that was the only moment and the rest of the time he was always very provocative and obnoxious. So in the end the Sangha had a meeting and he was asked to leave. But throughout all that time I never saw Ajahn Anand get angry or upset with him. He just had to deal with him. And that was very much his way, you, know, sort of, you might say the living fruits of the practice. You know, he'd learned to internalize the Dhamma, so he had his sila established no, he said, he used to say, you know, even if somebody asked him to physically hurt another person, he couldn't do it. There's not that thought in the mind, there's not that intention. Even if somebody else was threatening him, saying, if you don't hurt this person, I'll kill you, he couldn't do it. And that sankara had just gone from the mind. And it seemed to be true in the way he behaved. He's always... Uh, polite, restrained, peaceful, even with difficult people, difficult lay people, difficult monks. And in the course of a life of being a teacher, you'll get, you know, you get a lot of praise and respect, but you also get the odd difficult person as well. But he never seemed to give in to that, to, to anger or hatred. And that's the fruits of the samana life, the fruits of the practice. A clear insight or vision of the Dhamma that in the end everything is just sankharas arising and ceasing. And there's no self in all this. So that perception of emptiness, very kind of clear, comes through in his teachings and in his presence. If your mind is firmly got one eye on that emptiness all the time, well then you don't tend to give in to kilesas very easily. They arise, maybe arise, but then you let, let them go very quickly because the mind is seeing them as empty of self. So particularly in the, these days, his teachings 
talks a lot about emptiness, just bringing the mind to perceive emptiness. And you know, you might think, well, that's a very advanced reflection. You know, we can't see emptiness very easily. And in one sense, that's true. Because I mean, even Nibbana, they say, is, is emptiness. But in another way, I mean, it's something you can start to notice. You just bring up the perception of emptiness in daily life. So as they say, as the uh, Buddha said, you know, when the monastery is very full with people and busy, in those days it would be full of chariots, these days full of cars, <coughs> and people coming and going and chatting. Some people get distracted by that or react to that. But then the people don't live in the monastery, they go home again after the dana, after the dhamma talk, they go home and the monastery returns to that spaciousness, the emptiness. And the Buddha used to say, well reflect on that. That's a kind of reflection anyone can have. Just reflect on the emptiness of the monastery when there's no people around. The emptiness of a hall when the people are gone. The emptiness of the forest it's just trees and space in the forest. There's not much happening. Not not much else happening. These kind of reflections you reflect on, you can reflect on and bring up any time. You start with the world around you first, and use the silence, emptiness, spaciousness of the the forest, an empty kuti, an empty hall and make that clear to yourself so you're bringing up that perception to counter the tendency to attach to activity. And when there are people around we get caught into conversations and thinking about other people, what we like about them, what we don't like about them, attraction, aversion. It's so easy to get caught up into activity but you have to bring up the perception of emptiness to counter that. And notice it, notice when the monastery is empty. Notice an empty room. And then internally you, you start to notice the emptiness of the mind. How thoughts arise and cease. And there's emptiness. How moods come and go. So however much frustration or suffering you might experience, it's only temporary and there'll be periods when it's not there when there's no anger, no fear, no worry, no greed or lust. If you keep developing the perception of emptiness, the mind that is free from kilesa, free from suffering, well it will incline towards that, it will become much more familiar territory mentally for you, your consciousness will incline towards emptiness. Obviously there's ever more subtle levels of emptiness that we can appreciate and gain knowledge of, of through the practice, but you begin like this, you begin with the course, what's obvious. And we have to do that, it's one way you develop contentment with the bhikkhu life, just appreciating, you know, anicca dukkha anatta off the world, the emptiness of the world, the emptiness of form, the emptiness of mental states. Because it brings you contentment, 
encounters the tendency to always want to be building and creating and attaching to things. Obviously when the perception becomes really clear, then the mind just doesn't want to create based on kilesa, you know, dhanha, upadana anymore. It's more satisfied with abandoning and the liberation, the emancipation from the whole process of clinging and attachment. And it's another perception to bring up freedom from suffering and the causes of suffering. And there'll be times <clears throat> daily <clears throat> when your mind is free from suffering, but you have to notice it, be aware of it. So the teachers help point to it through their presence, through their words, but you have to internalize that and bring it up for yourself so it becomes familiar knowledge, familiar territory for you. And then it's a store of uh, peace and contentment that you can rely on. Obviously to really deepen it you have to keep investigating the Dhamma and keep coming back particularly to the Rupa Dhamma, the body. So again, another constant theme for, from Lumpur Nan's teaching sister, Gaya Sati Dhatu Gamatana, keep coming back to reflect on whatever aspect of the body you can, using memory, using the sankhara, the thought formations at first, the information you have in the mind, you run through visually, mentally, run through the body, and direct the mind to pay attention to the body, you're running through the parts of the body, and like many teachers, he also talks about how there's this great sticking point is you know, the skin, the human body. You know, we're so familiar with looking at people and identifying on the outside, looking at ourselves, the familiarity of facial features and the body, the color of the skin, and the sealed bag of skin. You know, the skin is a real sticking point because it brings that sense of self with it, solidity, this is who I am, keeps all the bits inside in, keeps it all together. So really <clears throat> contemplate you know, the impermanence, lack of self, lack, lack of a person in skin. Your skin is made up of the earth element. So practice like those autopsies and those you know, sort of study videos where you pull the skin off little by little, examine it, look under it, take it apart, strip it off. It really changes the perception because once you take skin off a person you don't recognize them anymore. You don't know who they are. At first glance you wouldn't even know if they're male or female young, old, so just skin, you know, a lot of monks have broken through their Sakaya Ditti, contemplating skin, as if taking it off the body over and over again regularly, contemplating how it is just the earth element, breaks down, goes back into the earth, and what is the earth? It's just natural elements, 
There's no being or person in that. Obviously you contemplate the body, it's not an easy task because it's repulsive and we tend to shrink away from it in our mind. So it's something you have to just keep returning to patiently. And you also have to be a little bit creative and flexible because it can get very boring, not bring up a good reaction in the mind. So you can be creative, look at the body from different angles, look at different parts of the body, consider its different aspects, anicca, dukkha, anatta. Over many days, months, years, you, know, you can learn to approach it in different ways, skillfully to keep up the interest. But the aim is to calm the mind down and really be able to develop that detached awareness where the mind is focused inwardly on the body, on the canvas, already dropped all the other concerns and worries about the rest of the world. That's your first task. And then to stick with contemplating the body to see it as it is. Break through this self-identification with body as me, mine, myself. And in the end, you know, to really, the mind just gets tired and fed up of identifying with the body. There's that sense of just turning away from the body, the attachment to it and all the birth, all day sickness and death that it brings with it and then all the other mental suffering it brings with it. So these are some of the themes that you pick up from Lumpur Nan's teaching and just some uh, something to reflect on tonight as you practice. Keep sitting and walking and uh, we'll have morning chanting at 4am. So I'll leave you with these reflections for now. <laughs>